0: I was dealing with a lake in the front yard. Uh, so my, my arc is only half constructed. Uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll see if we, we get there.
1: I hope I can uh, finagle myself a ticket uh, to the ark when the flood comes. Um, well, I'm going
0: to have two of every kind of tech policy commenter, uh, right? So I, I, I need two First Amendment lawyers. I think you can help me with that.
1: Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I knew it. I knew that the, being a First Amendment lawyer would save my life one day. Welcome to Moderated Content's weekly news update from the world of trust and safety with myself, Evelyn Dueck and Alex Stamos. We have a surprising amount of content to get through today, so we're going to jump right in. We talk a lot about wanting policy responses to be empirically informed when we're talking about tech policy. And so we thought it was a good opportunity because there were two big studies that came out in the last week about the impacts of what people actually see online, which are worth paying attention to. Hopefully, policymakers will pay attention to them as they're thinking about regulatory design. And also just policymakers, academics, tech platforms thinking about the best way to deal with online speech. So We've got two of the authors with cameos today to talk about their findings. So the first is Josh Tucker, who with five co-authors wrote a paper in the journal Nature Communications titled Exposure to the Russian Internet Research Agency Foreign Influence Campaign on Twitter in the 2016 US election and its relationship to attitudes and voting behavior. I love social science titles. They are much more self-explanatory than law journal titles, um, which always try to be catchy at the expense of clarity. So here's Josh Tucker telling us about his study.
2: Thanks so much for having me on the podcast this week to talk about our new study out in Nature Communications about exposure to tweets from the Russian foreign influence attempt in the 2016 US election. Our study had four major findings. Most importantly is to understand, this is the first study of which we're aware that actually measured not what the Russian troll accounts were attempting to do, what the content of the tweets were, what networks they were embedding in, but actually who was exposed to the tweets. And we were able to do this because we had a survey in the field during the 2016 elections where we talked to people in April of 2016, October of 2016, and then again right after the election. And in that intervening time, we were able to collect all of the tweets from all of the participants in the survey from all of the people who they followed. So we could cross-check this list of 1.2 billion tweets to which our survey participants could have been exposed with the list of tweets that were produced by the Russian trolls that was released by Twitter. And here's what we found. First, we found exposure to these tweets from the Russian trolls was incredibly highly concentrated. 1% of our sample accounted for almost 70% of the potential exposure to these tweets. And 10% of our sample accounted for 98% of the exposure. What that means is that 90% of our sample probably didn't see any tweets or at most just a handful from these Russian trolls. So heavily, heavily concentrated. Second, we found that the relative prevalence of these tweets from the Russian trolls, this was not the only source of information people had about the election by a long shot. Indeed, we found that people got four times as many tweets from politicians and political parties in the same time as they did from these Russian trolls, and close to 25 times as many tweets from media sources. And that's just on Twitter. So people who were exposed to these tweets from these trolls also had lots of other opportunities to get information about the election. Our third finding was that when we looked at who were the people who got exposed to more of these tweets, it was heavily concentrated among highly partisan Republicans, so strong Republicans. And indeed we found that strong Republicans in our sample on average got exposed to nine times as many tweets from these trolls as did Democrats or independents. So, when you take all of these things together, that the tweet exposure was highly concentrated, that there were lots of other potential sources of information about the elections on Twitter to say nothing of what was off of Twitter, and that the people who were exposed to these tweets were more likely to be the types of people who were going to definitely vote for Trump anyway, our final result becomes perhaps not as surprising as you might have thought ahead of time, which is that when we looked at whether or not there were changes in attitudes, from people from April to October or whether changes in vote preference from people from April to the election time. And we looked at whether that was related to whether they had seen any tweets from these Russian trolls or the number of tweets that they had seen from the Russian trolls, we found there was no correlation between becoming more polarized on political issues or becoming more or less likely to want to vote for one of the particular candidates, or even more or less likely to say, not vote for Hillary Clinton by voting for an alternative candidate or not participating in the election at all. No real change, we couldn't find any relationship between seeing a lot of these tweets and being more likely to change your position on issue areas or on voter preference. However, it's critical to put these results in context. This crucially does not mean that Russia never interfered in the 2016 election. In fact, our entire study is predicated on the fact that Russia was interfering in the 2016 election and that we could take at face value the tweets Twitter gave us as evidence that Russia interfered in the election. Of course, we also know that there were many other ways that Russia tried to interfere in the election. Russia tried to interfere by, on Facebook. Russia tried to interfere by purchasing ad on Facebook. And of course, there was the hack and leak where Russia hacked, participated in hacking the DNC and then leaking that information at opportune times over the course of the campaign has been well documented by Kathleen Hall Jamison in her research and by others. So we want to be super clear. What we have studied in this, what we have done is we have given a piece, we have given some evidence about one piece of the Russian attempt to interfere in the US 2016 elections.
1: Right. And here's Sol Messing, who, with nine co-authors in Nature Human Behaviour, published a study titled, A Two-Million-Person Campaign-Wide Field Experiment Shows How Digital Advertising Affects Voter Turnout. Again, extremely helpful title. Here's Sol explaining what they found.
3: So there's two big takeaways from this paper. First, uh, social media ads have very small effects on voting, far smaller than many pundits and media commenters often assume, but even tiny effects can have pretty big implications for U.S. presidential elections, thanks to the Electoral College. All right, Biden won Wisconsin by just 0.6 percentage points. Okay. Second, this paper shows that people who voted early were more responsive to ads, and this may be because in October. The media is very saturated with politics, with advertising, and a lot of swing voters have already made up their minds. But if you reach someone in July, maybe they vote before they forget about the ad. We, we often see ad effects decay over time. Now, because we're talking about really small effects, you need a big real world experiment to start to understand how social media affects elections. Survey experiments can be unrealistic. Those are A-B tests embedded in a survey. Uh, Correlational studies are tricky because politicians buy ads in competitive districts, so you can't just look at vote returns and spending. You really need the kind of big field experiment we conducted. Now, the best past field experiments have shown that the effect is basically zero, but there's a lot of pushback from people uh, who look at those studies and complain that they're too focused on a single ad and not looking at an entire ad campaign, much less the sum total of advertising people get. Mark Melman uh, put it really nicely. Uh, one group ate a potato chip, the other had none. They were retested. Would you expect to find an effect on health? You know, obviously not. So what we do is for the first time, we create a control group for an entire eight-month $8.9 million advertising campaign. We worked with Acronym, which is a pro Democrat nonprofit and a pretty big spender in 2020. Um, and these were served to people in five battleground states. So it's pretty realistic. You know, my home state of Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania, all very competitive states. Okay, and so what do we show? We show this campaign increased voting among Biden leaners by about 0.4 percentage points and decreased voting among Trump leaners by 0.3 percentage points for a difference of 0.7 percentage points. So we're seeing differential turnout of about the same margin that Biden won in Wisconsin, obviously in favor of Biden. And as I said earlier, we show that this effect is even stronger among early voters. So some of the best evidence we have to date about the effects of ads on uh, differential turnout.
1: So I think, you know, there's a bunch to dig into here. Uh, and I, it, I ironically, I've seen a lot of different takeaways uh, floating around online about what these studies say. So just to start, Alex, what's your headline takeaway from these together?
0: Yeah, like you said, there's a real Rorschach test that just like anything else, it turns out you can interpret papers in nature to, through a culture war lens. My takeaway is, you know, for years, lots of people have been overestimating the impact of social media platforms probably overall, and in particular, these two things. Now, um, you know, you heard Josh be very careful about framing that he only looked at a very specific part of the Russian Internet Research Agency's activity in 2016. So he did not look at all GRU activity, which is the hack and leak, and he didn't look at IRA activity on Facebook and elsewhere. I think the other IRA activity was really the same content. It was of different volume, but there's, there's no effect... That I think would be significantly different on the IRA. He just happened to have Twitter data from doing a survey at that time, and so they got very lucky that they just happened to be, you know, looking at what people are seeing on Twitter in real time. Like Josh said, I, you know, the IRA was probably not hugely effective. That this, I've been saying this for years, and usually I get called like a tech bro apologist and all this kind of stuff, and so it's nice to have a little bit of empirical data in Nature, which is you know one of the top journals, uh, a big. Big month for nature and quantitative social science. And it's just nice to have empirical evidence backing up what was was honestly pretty obvious to me, which is one, the IRA activity is a drop in the bucket of the overall discussion of the 2016 election. The in the year 2016, the most discussed topic in the entire planet was Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump. And so, in to the backdrop of that, any kind of concerted campaign is still going to be probably pretty minimal for the amount of content being created by lots and lots of partisan actors and then also nonpartisan actors. The other thing that was always obvious that people never, we've been, I've been saying this since, 2017 that people haven't really paid attention to is the IRA campaign was not mostly about the election, right? And so the vast majority of the content from the Internet Research Agency did not mention a candidate, did not mention the election. It was about stirring up people on other topics. And again, on those other topics, there's so much more stuff out there. So, I mean, I'm glad Tucker did this. It does demonstrate that those kinds of coordinated campaigns that we can't, we should not over pivot on what their impact is.
1: Right. I mean, it's pretty clear that this sort of hypodermic needle theory of how social media works is false. You know, this study came out. It was, uh, you know, widely, widely reported on it and uh, reported on. And a lot of social media researchers are like, well, duh, <laughs> we knew this all along. But I think it's really good to have that evidence and hopefully policymakers pay attention to it. Right. You know, this is not something like you get this content directed straight into your brain and suddenly uh, you're you're transformed from a Hillary voter to a Trump voter. Right.
0: And, and it's good because this paper is finally broken through. There's been some other studies that have shown kind of the same stuff. But this one seems to be the one that's finally broken through to kind of what you might want to call it the New York Times consensus of you know the 500 people in in DC and New York who kind of decide what the conventional wisdom is on these things, finally understand what the rest of us have been saying for years. That being said, you know talking about the lens, it does not mean that Russia did nothing. I'm glad Tucker talked about that because his research is being weaponized by people who want to deny Russia did everything. And, and like he said, the whole thing is predicated on the Russians actually did something. And it doesn't mean the Russians weren't effective in the big picture. The GRU activity, I think, was much more effective because- the you know Hacking all of those email accounts, hacking the DNC, hacking John Podesta, and then getting media outlets to run them changed the entire tenor of the conversation. Now, that becomes this much more complicated discussion because you've got like James Comey making decisions and you've got, you know, all of these different political actors making different decisions based upon what's going on. It's very hard to kind of figure out, you know, what they would have done. Without this, but the whole but her emails thing was clearly a bigger deal in the last couple months of the election than the relatively tiny amount of content from the Internet Research Agency.
1: Right. Yeah, I I think it was really great that Josh was really clear about this, both in the in the memo and on how he's been talking about it more generally. Because you know, I was going to ask you, Alex. You know, in in the time since uh, you worked at Facebook, sniffing this stuff out, you you've set up. Uh, a Stanford Internet Observatory, you write a ton of you ton of time searching out into information operations, you write a ton of reports. Does this study make you want to sort of hang up your hat and go, well, we didn't need to worry about this at all? No,
0: because I, I think there are things that you have to, one, I think it's important to, for just to understand what countries are trying to do. Every country in the world is trying to manipulate the online information environment to their benefit, right? And so it's just important for us to document that so that people can understand what's going on and take steps, even if the impact is sometimes not that great. Second, again, this was the most discussed thing in 2016. It is also an issue for which really goes to people's identity, right? That is incredibly deeply held. I still think, and I would love to see research in this area now, it's a lot harder just because you're talking about much smaller data sets, of the attempts to manipulate political beliefs of Americans on topics for which they don't have deeply held beliefs. The number one topic of the internet research agency is actually domestic Russian politics, right? So the most of the work the IRA does is to shore up Putin domestically. But probably the second largest and something as a huge target of GRU was Syria. Was the situation in Syria and a, a big focus was trying to get progressives in the west, in the United States and in Europe. To believe that any kind of intervention by the West was imperialistic, and that Assad was basically the good guy, the Russians were the good guys, the Americans and the people who were fighting against Assad were the bad guys, and that is an area where, like, internal Syrian politics, not a lot of people have, you know, strongly held culture war, unless you're from the Middle East, uh, feelings about it, and I think. It would be interesting to see how effective that was because that is a campaign that was not just about this kind of trolling content, but about creating fake journalists, creating fake people on the ground, creating entire kind of lefty progressive outlets, mostly on the left, to push the idea that Assad was uh, somebody they should champion. And, And you do see that kind of stuff from people on the far left. And so I, I, you know, for those other topics, you have Saudi Arabia and Yemen, right? Like not a lot of Americans had a lot of opinions on that. And so if you see a piece of propaganda, it might be the only thing you see on that topic that month versus 20 things about Clinton, Trump in a day. And so I, I still think it's a big deal. And then the third reason is the kind of coordinated campaigns to manipulate the platforms is a lot, I think, less about just general blowing stuff out and more about hurting individuals, right? So what we've seen a move to is these trolling campaigns are all about individual destruction of people they disagree with. So if you're, especially like a woman, but if you're like a Chinese dissident and you leave China and you live in Australia and you write about the Chinese Communist Party, you will have thousands of trolls who spread things about your lies, about your sexual history and about this and that, and this and that, horrible, horrible things to make your entire family and your friends and everybody disown you that's the kind of thing that has huge individual impact on that person and still I think we need to focus on
1: yeah you're you're absolutely right all of the studies show that it's really really hard to move the needle on something that people already have deeply held beliefs about or whether there's a where there's a uh, you know where there's lots of content that they're being swamped with, which is brings us to the, the study that Sol talked about. You know, This was, as you said, it's a bit of a Rorschach test. I saw this being discussed in, in different ways online with half people being like, you see, this shows that digital advertising has no effects. And then a half of people say, you see, we show that digital advertising can have really meaningful effects. I saw you tweeted saying that this study really calls into question the assumptions people have had about the effectiveness of political ads since Obama too. Can you unpack what you were meaning by that? Yeah. So
0: I, I think people forget that the first major political campaign in the u.s that really effectively used social media advertising was the re-election campaign for President Obama in 2012 at the time this was not seen as a scandal the people who did that went around and, and gave talks in fact I saw a really good talk by his team at a Amazon Web Services conference because they're also very early users of AWS and talked a lot about kind of the architecture and the data and they gathered up a lot of data I think legally but you know and perhaps not in a completely unsketchy way. And they were able to use that. And they believed that that was determinative. They didn't have a lot of good evidence of that. It was just one of the things that got attached to Obama's re-election, And so I think, you know, since then, people have just kind of assumed that online political advertising is incredibly impactful. You know, like Solomon talked about, they did show some effects, especially for for early voters, that it might be effective. But, you know, the overall effects are not humongous. And, and this, again, kind of you know, there's like this ridiculous Netflix uh, documentary uh, about Cambridge Analytica and advertising and stuff. And like it, we've had kind of over and over again this media blitz on the idea that online ads can just reprogram people. And that was clearly overstated. But this was even stronger result. This is a stronger result than I thought of. So this actually has made me th- rethink a little bit because I have been pretty aggressive about talking about limits to political advertising online. And if it doesn't matter that much, then it, You know, I think it's still reasonable to have limits, but it's not as big a deal versus some
1: other things. Great.
0: Um, I I do also want to say, I think this overall paper is really bad for big tech companies, because if you're reading it, it's hard to think of like, well, then do other ads for just commercial products work, right? Like they didn't specifically address it, but it does raise that question of whether, you know, this whole kind of post Cambridge Analytica bubble of believing that digital ads can just manipulate people. If you're the chief marketing officer at Toyota, (laughs) that means you put a lot of money into digital advertising versus TV, right? And so that, that should be interesting. That's happening at the same time that, Apple, through their privacy moves, are making it harder to measure the outcome of digital ads. So this is kind of a one-two punch against Google and Facebook right. especially.
1: Although potentially people have less strongly held beliefs about which soap they should use as opposed to uh, which candidate they're voting for. But who knows? People feel very strongly about soap sometimes. All right. So uh, anything else on those on those <laughs> uh, studies before we move on?
0: I'm really glad to see it. These are two fantastic researchers. This is I just want to compliment the entire teams here and then congratulate them again in nature. It's like it's great to see the editors of a variety of nature outlets, you know, be willing to 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 do this kind of research, even when it questions some widely held assumptions.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I guess just also to go back to the point that we opened with, which is that you know, policymaking, lawmaking should be empirically informed. And this is an a time of immense activity uh, in lawmaking and immense concern about these social media platforms and what's going on. Uh, and so it'd be great if this kind of research filters up. I think it also makes a very strong case for the kind of like transparency data access laws that are floating around on the Hill because yes. these kinds of studies are extremely informed. Informative and extremely helpful uh, in working out what we should do. And so that's the, the best place to start so that we can make the rest of our policymaking informed.
0: And to make a pivot, I think especially Tucker's work would actually probably be impossible under an API change that currently happened. Should, should, is it time for us to pivot to Fantastic
1: that? segue. And with that... <laughs> all right. It's actually the perfect sound for this segment, our uh, weekly Twitter corner. So as you just mentioned, Alex, the stories have been coming out that Twitter is cutting off API access for third-party apps. You've said you think this is a pretty big deal. Why?
0: Yeah, it's a big deal on a couple levels. So clearly it's, it is probably about money, right? Like Twitter has always had this love-hate relationship about third-party apps. They're one of the only major commercial platforms that have allowed third-party apps to exist. You know, YouTube doesn't allow it. Facebook goes to incredible lengths to sue people. Uh, LinkedIn has a, a Ninth Circuit case, right? That's how far they went to, to prevent people from having third-party apps. So Twitter, for quite a while, allowed third-party apps, but it was always a challenge for them because these apps... Don't allow them to show advertising and and sometimes don't send back the advertising, the kind of uh, user analytics that are useful for figuring out, like, what are people doing? What are they clicking on? All that kind of stuff. The data just flows off and then nothing comes back. Nobody clicks anything. And so you end up providing a, a service completely and totally for free. And so as long as third-party apps were kind of a small percentage of users, it wasn't a huge deal. It's unclear to me what the percentage was. It couldn't have been that big. But Musk is clearly desperate for everything. But the flip side is is this API, the streaming API for Twitter, is used by a lot of researchers to do their research on what happens. I know of several university groups that have now gone completely dark. They they have no idea of what's going on. They have to rebuild their systems to use some other APIs that still exist. So... I think just like you said, that this research was incredibly, the empirical research is incredibly important for policymakers. That Josh Tucker research can only exist because in 2016, there are APIs he was able to pull to see what people were seeing on Twitter. Yeah, you know, we're not going to be able to get that in five, six years from now. If they continue to go dark, so I do think it is a great demonstration of why we need the the PADA and equivalent laws around the world.
1: Yeah, uh, this was one of the big concerns that myself, many of us talked about when Musk took over. Was Twitter Twitter really led the field both in in terms of providing transparency and data access for researchers, and you know also providing transparency around the effects of their content moderation interventions? And it was really important stuff that helped inform the, the field more generally, and whether that would disappear as Musk. Uh, took over uh, this is one example another example I mean this is probably not malintent but if you go to their uh transparency report page at the moment for their rules enforcement this is like an industry standard report it's actually pretty inane and not super useful for people. But it is something that every major tech platform puts out about how much content they've been taking down over the last six months. It says data not found or some other similar error yeah. message right now. So it's just not a priority for Musk. Um, and so I think that is a that is really sad to see yeah. as, as this goes on.
0: And I don't think there's a conspiracy, a nefarious conspiracy there. I think it's just he's lost all of his good people. He has cut a huge number of folks. There's a bunch of th- functions at Twitter, like putting together that transparency data, where it's just nobody's job. It, it there might not even be people who know that there were, it used to be somebody's job, right? Like you're at the point now where you fire the people, and then you fire the people who knew that those people existed. It's it's becoming like a some kind of crazy disappearing people like you're Trotskying, you know, out entire functions at Twitter that nobody, nobody left in the building even knows that these are things that are generally done in the industry, which is for something like a transparency report, not great, but not like terrible. I'm really worried about InfoSec right now. Like I'm really worried about, you know, Twitter has a long history of difficult security challenges. They had a team that over the last year and a half or so was really busting their butts. And that team has completely evaporated. There's only a handful of people. So like that's the kind of thing that you don't see from the outside until there's a breach or until there is a downstream effect of, you know, somebody going to jail because you know, secret police were able to steal data from Twitter. And that that kind of stuff, I think all of these little things are indicators that things are are really chaotic there right now.
1: Yeah. It'll be interesting to see the downstream effects of this on you know the research in this area more generally. Whenever you went to conferences in this area, social science conferences, you know, the number of papers on Twitter outnumbered the number of papers on YouTube. YouTube, like 20 to 1, even though the user yeah. base um, is a fraction of the size, simply because they provided more data. And so it'll be interesting to see now what those conferences look like if there's a grand yeah. rebalancing or no one showing up. Uh, <laughs> we'll see. Right.
0: No, and that's a good point. And that's a legitimate argument that Twitter had. But the legitimate argument is that people spend way too much time because the API is so good, right? You're like, we, we broke ourselves into jail, but it was still a good thing to allow people to do that research. It, yes, a lot of people who just would pivot to Twitter on everything are going to have to be more thoughtful about getting data elsewhere. But the flip side is, is this helps create the incentive structure for other companies to break down. You know, This is something that both of us mentioned You know, right when Musk started, which is you know, Mark Zuckerberg has been hating the transparency for years of the ways that people can get data out of Facebook. If Musk is going to just completely shut people off, uh, you know, it does create kind of an incentive for him to follow a little bit because whatever he does will not be as bad as Twitter and therefore would you know probably he could resist some of the, the yelling and screaming that otherwise would have happened.
1: Yeah, Musk continues to be uh, Zuckerberg's best friend at the moment. Although Musk is of course still providing meaningful transparency. Uh, the Twitter files still come out honestly, is anyone reading these anymore? Oh I'm sorry, this might be one of our last attempts to do it. The Twitter files. The Twitter files. Still come out. Uh, Matt Taibbi is still publishing them. Um, are you finding anything interesting in them these days, or is it sort of uh, petered out in terms of controversy?
0: I continue to read them partially to see uh, what kind of death threats I'll be getting that night if I get like a, a mention in an email. Yeah, I. It is still interesting to see the inner workings of these companies. To me, it's much less surprising because I've seen how these companies operate. But it is interesting to see this kind of transparency. One of the funny things about the Twitter files is that Yoel Roth, who I think is a great guy and has worked really hard to try to make Twitter. Safer while also trying to respect people's free expression rights. Yoel goes from hero to villain, hero to villain, sometimes in different tweets of the same thread. Right. Which to if you want to take a step back, which demonstrates that like it's actually legitimately hard when you're dealing with the FBI, when you're dealing with Congress, when you're dealing with Brazil and Germany and all of these countries, even just the democracies, it is legitimately hard to figure out whether requests from these governments are good or bad. And there's a bunch of stuff in there where Yoel, they now have internal emails where he's like, "This is ridiculous, this is ridiculous." So all of a sudden, he is a hero that is standing up. And then, uh, you know, Elon is is driving people with you know kind of really horrible QAnon-y rumors about UL of retweeting those, right? So it's like, it just demonstrates the complexity of dealing with these things that you and I clearly understand, but through the lens of if you're Amy Klobuchar on the left or if you're Glenn Greenwald on the whatever he is, the right-ish, then you can take these things and just completely interpret them one way or another, where the reality is it's like it's really fuzzy. In some cases, the FBI is giving Twitter accurate information about these are foreign influence operations. In some cases it looks like they overstated it. Certainly Congress is overstated. It. And I think it is good for people to see that if you work on one of these platforms, every member of Congress is continuously bugging your government affairs people about content they don't like on social media. Everybody. Every single one of them, Republican or Democrat. And so to go back to some of the transparency ideas that we've mentioned on the show, if Musk wants to release all the interactions with everybody with a house.gov and a you know a US Senate email, then that's totally fine because then we can see kind of all of the interactions and all of the requests. This kind of selective leaking, while interesting, does not allow you to draw a good conclusion on the behavior of different political
1: actors. Okay, so moving through some of the other stories we have this week, the New York Times had a nice story over the weekend about public universities banning TikTok on their Wi-Fi networks. The students, somewhat sad, but also laughing because they just turn on their data plans and access TikTok that way. What's going on here? Does this have any meaningful impact or is it just posturing when these ban TikTok from their networks.
0: I mean, it's definitely posturing. I, I think it's a fascinating for us to discuss that this raises a really interesting question that free countries are going to have, which is, you know, how do democracies with laws like the First Amendment fight against products that people want to use from authoritarian states that might be an overall geopolitical risk? We don't have a great firewall of the United States, and I don't think we should, right? And so preventing American citizens from accessing a product that comes from an overseas company feels very, very, very sketchy to me. You know, you can speak as to whether it's actually like a First Amendment violation, but to me, free expression is not just about what you can say, but is about what you can access. And kind of copying the Chinese a little bit by dropping IP blocks to block things that we don't like from other countries, it makes me very nervous. Um, like you said, it's just like it's silly in this case. It is le- totally legitimate. If the the federal government says this is a federal phone that you're using for federal business. We don't want TikTok on it. Totally smart move. Totally legitimate. That's totally reasonable to block IP addresses on an ISP effectively for teenagers. Very, very. I think it's it's a step too far, and it's just not compatible with how we should fight. We should not fight fire with fire against authoritarian governments as
1: well. Yeah, I mean, it just shows how a lot of the legislative responses in this area are not particularly well bought out or carefully formulated. So the reason that these bans are taking place is because all of these states, I think it's around 23 now, have passed some version of banning TikTok on government devices, government public networks, something along those lines. Um, and as you say, there may be a really good case for saying let's ban it on government phone. But often these laws are drafted imprecisely and public universities don't really know the extent of their liability. And so they're being uh, prophylactic and, and erring on the side of caution. And that is when you then do really open yourself up to, to First Amendment challenges. When you are banning, yes, it is also the, it is the teenagers who can't get their dances and their you know totally protected speech. Uh, it's also the academic researchers. You, know, uh, you and I probably both know plenty of academic researchers who are saying this has actually really impacted my ability to do my research because they are researching TikTok in part to work out what are the problems. With TikTok. Right. And so that again is absolutely protected uh, activity, protected speech. Um, and so I think that, you know, the, the fact that these laws aren't carefully drafted, re- extremely overbroad, uh, definitely makes them vulnerable for First Amendment challenges. So no doubt uh, we will see those coming soon.
0: It does seem compatible with all these state legislatures kind of censoring what people say in public universities, censoring what people say in public schools, right? Like it, it is, it's just, you know, a, a the same kind of you know censorious impulse that we've seen out of honestly local conservatives that talk about free speech in lots of ways and then spend all their time in the legislature restricting the speech of people
1: I did not mean to imply that I am shocked shocked that these bills are uh, that these states yes. have not been adequately uh, uh, conscious of the the speech effects uh, of, of their laws um, just such an exception so we spoke about the Stanford internet Observatory um, there was a big paper out this week with Renee Resta, our colleague colleague and OpenAI about the potential uses of ChatGPT for influence operations. Um, can you talk a little bit about what that said?
0: Yeah, my our colleague Renee uh, has spent a bunch of time with OpenAI thinking through what would really good large language models like ChatGPT, how would they affect influence operations? It is a very long paper. It is very complex. I recommend you read it. Uh, but as you imagine, the answer is it doesn't make it better for us, it makes it easier for them, right? And I think this has always been the concern of a lot of folks is that it's less about just straight up bot activity where you've got completely autonomous agents. It's more about if you're one dude in, let's go back to Saudi Arabia, right? And instead of having to fill a building full of people who speak perfect English, who have an understanding of of American politics, that have the ability to write editorials, that look like they're really written by Americans, you could just be one guy who has that skill and then you can have Chat GBT who do all the work for you. And so I think it's wonderful that OpenAI does this research openly and proactively. I think that's really cool that they are trying to, as they invent these absolutely incredible AI products, they're also thinking about the, the downsides. The flip side is, is OpenAI trying to put protections in place here is not going to matter for long because GPT is effectively going to be running on people's get graphics gaming cards in a year. And so we're we're in kind of a weird world where you have a handful of thoughtful companies that are thinking through the impacts while then the work they do trickles down into on-device systems really quickly. We saw this exactly with all the image stuff where Dolly and some other things made it so that you couldn't generate porn, you couldn't generate artificial CSAM and such. And then those techniques were then turned into models that on the dark web, you can go download all that kind of stuff and get really detailed instructions on on how to use it. And so I think we'll continue to see uh, that trickle-down effect. It's great to do this research, but in the the long run, you can't just ask OpenAI to put the protections in place. You have to Get ready for a world in which this amount of content can be created pretty cheaply.
1: Following up on a story that we've talked about before, um, we've complained about Apple's lack of transparency with the App Store. Uh, saw some semi exciting headlines this week about how they're promising uh, more transparency in the result in response to activist investors who have been upset with bans of certain apps from the App Store, including, for example, Bible and Quran study tools, and concerns about them being taken down as a result of government pressure. So there was some uh, reporting that Apple uh, has agreed to publish more transparency. Back to the fact that, you know, a lot of the usefulness of transparency, the devil is in the detail. It turns out that Apple will be publishing the legal basis for removal requests by each government, but it will only be um, broken down by country and app category and we won't have any information about individual apps. So maybe it's one step forward, half a step back. I don't don't really know what to make of this. I guess it's good that there is some sort of response to, to pressure for transparency, but I'm not sure how meaningful this will be.
0: Yeah, I don't think it's going to be meaningful at all because they're, they're not going to list the actual decisions that are made. Right right now, there are nonprofits that you can download from them the list of apps that are banned in certain countries, especially China. The way they do that is they fetch the XML metadata for all the apps in the app source from a bunch of different phones configured in different ways, and then they compare them all to each other. So if you assume, you know, in some cases that stuff's missing, and that could be an intentional decision by a App developer to just not be in a certain country, right? They didn't internationalize it or whatever. They can uncheck the box that you know my app's not available in Morocco because I don't feel comfortable or whatever. But in other cases, it 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 demonstrates really clear, you know, censorship. I have said this before. Apple has done more for the Chinese Communist Party than any other tech company has done for any other authoritarian state or party one of the things they do is they just make stuff disappear from the app store so that Chinese people don't have to be bugged by things like the New York Times or VPNs or uh, access to uncensored data. Um, I think is a completely unethical thing that they do and this tiny little band-aid does not make right. it better.
1: And quick update from the legal corner. I think we're going to need uh, a, and a sound effect to introduce this from now on, maybe a gavel uh, uh, hitting, the, hitting the table. Um, we'll, we'll work on it. Yeah. <laughs> hear ye, hear ye. In court action, uh, it's just, it's impossible to keep up with how much is happening Uh, in in the courts around this area. Um, Getting in on the action was the public school district in Seattle filed a novel lawsuit against tech giants, basically every platform that you can think of, saying that it has caused a mental health crisis among youth and seeking damages for all of the extra time that teachers and schools have to put into dealing with the the fallout of this. When you see every headline calling it a novel lawsuit, that should give you uh, some indication of level of success. I think it's just, uh, chances of success, I think it's just indicative of sort of all of the, the way that the law is being used and the posturing that's happening around these issues at the moment, um, no doubt, platforms do need to be conscious of the effects, the mental health effects that they have b- among youth. But drawing a straight line between them and you know a teacher putting in extra counselling time is a little bit uh, a little bit of a stretch. Relevant to that is the, the lawsuits trying to get around Section Two Hundred and Thirty by arguing that platforms are uh, accountable for the way that they amplify content. And that case we know is at the Supreme Court right now. It's being argued next month and this week. Good Google filed its brief in Gonzales, arguing that if the court was to find uh, against Google and find that Section 230 didn't protect platforms for content that they amplify, that the internet as we know it will break and the sky will fall, which is not—it uh, is both not a surprise that that's what they're arguing and also not too much of an exaggeration, depending on how the court, um, court rules in this one. From the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court, its docket on free speech issues, this this term is uh, is nuts. My seminar is writing itself. It took another case this week, Counterman v. Colorado, which you know the synopsis of the case doesn't sound that exciting. It's about what mens rea do you need uh, to prove a true threat that uh, is unprotected by the First Amendment. But if you dig in, this is actually a case about a prosecution of someone for stalking on Facebook through Facebook messages. It was someone that stalked a local musician, sent her direct messages over the course of a number of years. This has been being argued that you know this doesn't amount to true threats and therefore unprotected by the First Amendment because uh, he wasn't subjectively intending to to threaten actual violence. The this case is scary to me because it's being argued as a true threats case, but actually the the statute underlying it is a stalking statute. And if the court decides that stalking statutes uh, need to be significantly narrowed and that the mens rea requirement needs to be uh, much a much higher. Requirement in that area, I think that that would be a really bad thing for a step back in terms of stalking prosecutions online, which is a is a massive issue. So I'm worried about that one.
0: This is a total wrong direction, right? Like people are, we do not have enough laws that take into account what the impact can be, even just being stalked by one person. You know, I I've dealt with a number of situations, both at Facebook and since then, kind of in 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 private uh, consulting of individuals where. You know, one determined person who understands how the law works and how the internet works can make your life total hell. In the case of especially children and teenagers, this has led to lots of horrible outcomes, including suicide. Right, and that is just for one person. If you're in a situation where you are Dr. Fauci or anybody mentioned in the Twitter files or somebody who QAnon is 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 holding up as this person is a pedophile groomer, you know then your life can be complete in total hell. And we need more laws that take into account the real world impact of concerted attacks against individuals. And I, I hate the idea that the Supreme Court might wipe that out in a, in a very undemocratic way and not allow states to come up with the laws to actually protect people. Like the laws that we have right now are not working. The enforcement we have right now is not working to even raise the barrier, I think could have really harmful long-term effects. In, in a way that is totally apolitical, right? Like this seems to me, you know, people on, I hate to say both sides, right? But it is it is not totally symmetrical, but it is true that people from a wide variety of things. And at the same time, the Supreme Court is asking for these special protections where they themselves can't have their, you know, they want to have it that it's illegal to post their home addresses. You know, they want to be, have special privacy rights that aren't given to any other person in the United States and only given to federal judges. I think it's completely, that they have reasonable points there, honestly, like, you know, if I was a Supreme court justice and had kids, I would be really worried about them and the safety of my family. But, that should hopefully give them more empathy to what everybody else faces, not right. less.
1: Uh, knowing how the legal sausage gets made, it is, you know, the only saving grace may be that a number of Supreme Court justices have recently been stalked, including online. And so that may inform their analysis of this case. You know, I may be totally wrong. This may be an excellent pronouncement in a, in a relatively unclear area of First Amendment law that protects stalking statutes uh, around the country. It is truly amazing how much of the First Amendment and, and platform regulation is up for grabs on the on the court's docket this term. So we'll see uh, how much rec- Package it can do. In the meantime, if you were worried, uh, if you're wondering if tech regulation was going to continue to be a political hot button issue, um, a number of bills have been introduced uh, already. The Republicans into the House have introduced an anti-jawboning bill, presumably in uh, response to the Twitter files about government pressure on platforms to take certain things down. And then Biden joined the fray uh, with an asinine Wall Street Journal op-ed about tech regulation this week with the wonderful phrase, we must hold social media companies accountable for the experiments. They're running on our children for profit. So if we started the the episode with some optimism about empirically informed policy making, um, maybe we we ended on a, a note of um, pessimism.
0: Yeah. So I mean, but without good empirical evidence, what what chance do they have? Right. Like these. I mean, they're clearly trying to do like the tobacco. It, everybody wants to be the tobacco class action lawyers, right? Like every everybody who you know. If you graduate from law school, I guess you you don't decide you want to defend big corporations. You want to be a prosecutor and put criminals away, or you want to be a public defender, or you want to be a professor and to teach the next generation, or you want to be a class action lawyer. And if you're going to be a class action lawyer, you don't want to do slip and falls. You want to do like the tobacco litigation, right? Like big world changing. But there was, what, 50 years, 60 years, 70 years of very hard empirical evidence on the impact of tobacco, whereas all of these studies about the impact of social media are incredibly mixed, right? So, like, it, it does seem to me to be a little bit of a, a little bit silly to try to front run this when you don't have all that evidence to check in. I mean, are you just hoping to get, will even get to a jury. Will a judge allow this to move forward unless they have, Lots and lots of, of real evidence to try to back up the creation of this class and everything. I wouldn't bet on it. Which there are legitimate concerns here. Like like I I am I am very careful about my kids' social media usage. This is like a common thing is that they write, you know, the, the media loves to write. That Silicon Valley executives, you know, don't let their kids use their iPads for 14 hours a day. Yeah, no, no shit. You, you have to be really careful about children using the internet. But then like our responses should be targeted and thoughtful and based upon evidence, not just like these these big you know kind of uh, press grabbing class action lawsuits, which don't seem to actually fix
1: anything, right? We will have to do an Alex's how to episode on how to um, you know effectively make sure that your teen and children's social media usage uh, is 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 safe. I'm sure that many people uh, would be interested. Anything else before we wrap?
0: No, it's been a busy <laughs> it's been a busy couple of weeks. I don't think 2023 is going to be a, a super chill. Yeah. Um, but now that, sport, now that the World Cup's over, we should probably turn this into a weathercast. Um, oh, it has been yeah. raining continuously it's, here in California. Exactly. Uh, and uh, You were dealing so with a I, lake I have,
1: this morning? Uh, I, I,
0: I was dealing with a lake in the front yard. Uh, so my, my ARC is only half constructed. Uh, we'll, yeah. we'll see if we, we get there.
1: I hope I can uh, finagle myself a ticket uh, to the ARC when the flood comes. Um, well, I'm going to have two of every kind of tech policy
0: commenter, uh, right? So I, I, I need two First Amendment lawyers. I think you can help me with that.
1: Fantastic. (laughs) I knew it. I knew that being a First Amendment lawyer would save my life one day. And with that, this has been your moderated content weekly update. This show is available in all the usual places, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Show notes are available at law.stanford.edu forward slash moderated content. This episode wouldn't have been possible without the research and editorial assistance of John Perino, policy analyst extraordinaire at the Stanford Internet Observatory. It is produced by the wonderful Brian Pelletier. Special thanks also to Alyssa Ashdown, Justin Fu and Rob Huffman.